Bocciolo, Beth It's a beautiful day here in Northeast Ohio. It just wishes as warm as it looks, but uh, we have to suffer through some cold weather before it starts warming up here. And those of you listening to other warmer places in the world, uh, well, God bless you. We're all jealous, we confess. Um, anyways, this morning, I uh, just have one announcement for you. I was going to go over what's going to be happening with uh, children's activities through the month, each month. But you're going to be getting a brochure that Tim is polishing up, uh, hopefully tomorrow. And it will have activities and things lined up that we'll do each month with the children. We have a lot of exciting things coming along. So that's my only announcement. So let's get into the teaching. Um, in an email, I invited people to suggest a title for this teaching because we're breaking with the series on 1 Corinthians. Because in light of the things that have occurred over this past week here in our country and just the division, the tearing, and what's going on, I uh, told people I was going to take a break from 1 Corinthians this week, so I invited people to submit titles. We had some great suggestions, but Janet... Um, Janet, uh, oh my goodness, my mind just went, just blanked out. From, she's an online listener, will come to me later, but she suggested this title, Keeping Your Cool While Walking Through Fire. And I thought, well, that's a really good title for this week. So thank you, Janet. And um, so let's have a word of prayer and we'll get right into our teaching. Our Father and King, I thank you so much for the time of prayer we have enjoyed here at the Ministry Center. And I thank you for all those in homes around the area and around the world who have spent time in prayer and, and considering your commandment in the Torah, via Hafta, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources. Lord, help us to do that. I pray that the words you command us will be upon our hearts. I pray that as they live in our lives and are lived out through our lives, that, Lord, you'd make us more like Yeshua. Lord, make us the people you want us to be. And, Father, I ask that this teaching, which has so much room for confusion, I pray you would prevent that from happening. You'd protect us from confusion, from distraction, from division. Lord, nowhere, no matter where we're at, listen to this. And... Um, or whether we're driving or sitting in our homes, Lord, may our hearts and souls and minds be clear to receive what you would speak. And Lord, in these dark days in which we live, and as we see them getting darker, may we be beacons of light, of hope, of joy, and even of gratitude. Again, make us the people you want us to be, lights in the dark world. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. I want to talk about Bible prophecy a little bit. You know that's a topic I generally avoid because I just don't care for people who are just prophecy junkies or always want to talk about current events, how are they being fulfilled in the scriptures, and, and uh, this prophecy is being fulfilled over here. And I just don't get into that. I think it's a big distraction just from living a godly life. And that's what I need to focus on. But when you come to the prophets, uh, the prophets can be very difficult reading because you'll read about something that's happening at a particular period of time under a particular king, a particular situation. You think, what does that have to do with me? So to help us understand what goes on in biblical prophecy, I have a table here. And we're going to use that for our analogy. And I hope this sticks with you and maybe will help you in the future as you study the prophets. Now, tables are no mystery to anybody. You've got four legs, at least three, maybe more than four. But the table is supported by the legs. And whatever takes place on the surface of the table, it's held up by these four legs. But I want us to look at the table in a backwards kind of way that whatever is on the surface of the table is going to push down against the floor and have an effect upon the floor. You've got carpet in your house. You know what it's like when you move the sofa and you've got four, four divots in the carpet where the legs of the sofa were. 
And it makes it easy when you go to put the furniture back, right? You just drop the legs right back in the holes that are already there in the carpet. Well, this is what I want us to think of this table. Everything above this, this dashed line here is the spiritual. This is the spiritual realm up here. And everything down here at the bottom, of course, would be the physical. And what takes place in the spiritual realm impacts what takes place in the physical realm. Spiritual principles affect physical reality. In fact, everything in physical reality is here because it was spoken from the spiritual into the physical. How was the world created? God, who is spirit, he spoke forth words, and those words were the creation itself. Everything emerges from the spiritual. And I want us to think about the things that are on top of the table here as God's templates, God's patterns. And God has a template or a pattern for everything. And that pattern can manifest in this world in numbers of ways. So I'm going to give you just two examples for us to work through, okay? Well, the great example that comes to mind when I think of God's patterns is when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And while he's up there, God gives him instructions, the blueprint for the tabernacle. And he says, I want you people to make a tabernacle where I can dwell among them or within them. And you do it exactly according to the pattern I show you. So the pattern comes from God. It is spiritual. It's non-physical. But you take that pattern, you take it down to the camp, you collect the materials, and you assemble them and work them so that what you make matches the pattern. So how is that fulfilled? Well, we have four legs on this table. Let's talk about four ways that that is fulfilled. First of all, we'll take leg number one here. They build a tabernacle. In fact, the Torah gives more space to the description of the tabernacle as details. It goes through all the details twice. It gives more space to the tabernacle than any other subject. So the most emphasized subject in the Torah is the tabernacle. It's pretty amazing. So they actually built a tabernacle. Later on, David says, I want to make a more permanent house for you, Lord. So God gives David the plans for the temple. Now, David's prevented from building the temple, but Solomon, his son, builds the temple. And how is the temple made? Much the same as the tabernacle, outer court, open to the air and the sun. There's a building that has a holy place with the labor, I'm sorry, with the, uh, the menorah and the table of showbread and the golden altar of incense. There's a veil. Inside the veil, there's the Holy of Holies with the Ark. Same pattern, same template. That temple got destroyed. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people come back to Israel and they rebuild the temple. What's the pattern? Outer court, holy place, veil, holy of holies. Same template, same pattern. But every time, this is the part you have to make sure you don't miss. Every time God gives a template for some historical event, there's always, always, always a personal, individual representation, a, a, um event that takes place in each life. Because you see, each one of us we're called temples of a spirit, tabernacles of a spirit. Each of us has an outer court. It's called the body. That's part everybody can see, everyone can touch, everybody experiences. But inside of here, the part you can't see, the permanent part of me, is the soul. And then inside of that, there's even a smaller area where God dwells called the Holy of Holies. And that's where his presence is. It's from that part that he speaks. Each of us follows this pattern. And just as the tabernacle or a temple can be damaged or polluted, misused, so can your tabernacles. That's why we are to be very respectful of the body that is a tabernacle of God's spirit. 
and the tabernacle is a holy place. Only clean things are brought into it. It was a place of connection with God, both in the courtyard and in the holy place, and most of all, in the holy of holies. You understand? There's always a personal uh, revelation, a personal embodiment of each of these templates. Let's take another example. Another example. Um, we'll start with the first leg here. In, um, in Daniel, God prophesies that the temple is going to be polluted. And he refers to the abomination of desolations, where this Antichrist figure comes in and sets up a statue of himself. And this figure, he blasphemes, he denies God's, God's laws, he uh, is just a horrible human being, but he comes in to the temple, pollutes it, and sets himself up as God. And God tells Daniel, this is going to happen. And he tells him about this in Daniel chapter 9, over in chapter 11, and there are other little hints in there, but especially chapter 9 and 11. And believe it or not, it was actually fulfilled. It's completely, totally fulfilled. And that's what we celebrate at Hanukkah, when finally this wicked guy was killed, and the temple was was rededicated. That's what Hanukkah means, dedication. And the menorah was relit with holy oil, and uh, it happy ending. You know what they say every every Jewish holiday is that they try to kill us, we won, let's eat. You know, so that's that's what Hanukkah is about. So it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled about 150 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was that wicked individual who did exactly what God told Daniel he would do. But then we come to the Gospels, hundreds of years later. Matthew 24, Luke 11, where Yeshua says, he's talking about the days that are right around the corner, and he says, and when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, head for the hills. Well, wait a minute. It was already fulfilled back here. Yet Yeshua says it's going to happen again. And in Luke's gospel, he describes this abomination of desolation that was going to come. It's not so much an individual coming to the temple to set himself up, but an army coming to destroy God's temple. That's also an abomination of desolation, and that's exactly what happened. But then we come to Revelation. We come to Revelation, and Revelation in chapters uh, 11 and 13, it uses much of the same language as in Daniel, about a person who speaks blasphemies, who changes the laws, who, who sets himself up in God's place and brings destruction to the temple. So we see that there's also a future fulfillment of this. The same template up here in the spiritual is being acted out at different times in history. God's plans, God's template is making an impression on the world. And this is what we find about prophecy over and over and over again. In many ways, Hitler was a fulfillment of the Antichrist prophecies. And in John's epistles, he talks about how the spirit of Antichrist is already out there in the world. And this is where it comes down to our own physical experience of this. Because you see, since each one of us is a temple, it's easy to let the wrong spirit into your life. To let the wrong values come into your life. And they begin to nudge God out. They begin to pollute your mind and your soul and your spirit. And before you know it, you're a place of idolatry instead of a place of light and of love and devotion to God. So what happened in these historical events could happen on the level of each individual. you see that? Can you see that? All right? Okay. The reason I'm getting into this is because I want to know, Lord, what is the pattern for the days in which we live? If you provided a template for us in the scriptures. I know in every experience of my life, whatever I'm going through, good, bad, or otherwise, if I go to the scriptures, there's always a template. There's something that God lays out and describes in the spiritual realm 
that is exactly aligned with what I'm going through. I've seen it over and over again so many times. And you know, the world changed this past week. And I can't help but think, you know, when we finished December, that last week of December, what was our Torah portion? It was the last Torah portion of Genesis. Wonderful Torah portion. Right? The, the brothers come down to Egypt and then Joseph reveals himself. Ani Yosef, I am your brother Joseph. I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? And he embraces them and they're united. It's wonderful. And then Jacob and all the families, the 70 souls, Joseph's family, all come to Egypt. So during a time of world famine, they're all enjoying security and food, no taxes, living in the best part of Egypt, the land of Goshen. Wonderful. And then as you get to the end of the portion, Joseph, you know, Jacob blesses all his sons, and then Joseph blesses them, promises them they're going to be going back home and later on, but in the meantime, take care of each other, and he blesses them. And then this past Sunday, we turned the page to the book of Exodus. We still have the Israelites in Egypt. But boy, have things changed. Joseph is gone. It says that a new Pharaoh, a new king arose who didn't know Joseph. And what was a place of security and blessing and life during uh, a horrible famine now becomes a place of slavery and of pressure and of darkness and of death. Same place. And what's really interesting is the book of of, uh, of Exodus is called Shemot in Hebrew, names. Because it starts out, And these are the names of the sons of Israel who were coming to Egypt. And this is so strange. The rabbis talk about this. They say it should say who had come to, to Egypt. They were already there. Had been there for maybe 100 years or more before things really went south. Why does it say they were coming to Egypt when they were already there? And they answer it this way. They say, yeah, physically they were in Egypt. But they were now starting to enter a new dimension of Egypt. And it wasn't a pleasant one. It's almost like we're ready to enter a new dimension of America that we've never known before. Now, I'm not going to sit up here and tell you which side's right and which side is wrong. I'm not going to take sides. I am not at all interested in politics. But our country is torn down the middle like it's never been torn before. I don't even think in the Civil War we were this divided. And I've told you before from up here, you think 2020 was unpleasant? You'll wish you were back in 2020. 2021 is going to be darker. And we w- need to find, I want to find, what is the pattern God has for us, for Beth Takun, for our community, during these days. During these days. And let me preface it all with this. We must have a spirit of truth. We have to grab on to a spirit of truth and pray, God, give me a spirit of truth. Because, you know, when you take the two political sides that are hating, I've never seen such hatred. They hate each other to the point of wanting to kill. And we will see more of that. But this side is loaded with a barrel of facts, and this side's loaded with a barrel of facts. And they're throwing facts at each other, but I don't know of one person who said their political views changed because somebody threw a, a fistful of facts at them. Do you? I don't know of anybody. But let me share something with you. Did you know that in biblical Hebrew, there is no Hebrew word for fact? It's not there. Now, modern Hebrew there is, but in biblical Hebrew, the language of transcendence, you will not find the word fact anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. It's not there. And if something is not mentioned in the Hebrew, that means it's not real. Only things that are mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, that's their Hebrew word for, are real things that God has created. Facts are not there. Truth is, but not facts. 
You say, well, what's the difference? Facts are simply little splinters of truth without the context of truth. And without the spirit of truth, without the gravitational pull of truth, facts mean nothing. For example, all of our furniture and our bodies and everything, everything's in place right here because of gravity. But what if we could flip a switch and gravity was just turned off for a second? All of a sudden, the chairs and you and the books and the coats and the Bibles just start kind of floating around. The slightest puff of breath or a bump, and they go flying across the room. They lose their context. They don't stay in place. Nothing stays put because without the gravity, the gravitational pull, everything is just a mishmash. These are like facts. Without the gravitational pull of truth, facts can be anything you want. You know, we say, what goes up must come down. That's a fact. Well, outside the context of truth, it's not true at all. We send a lot of things up into space that just keep on going. They don't come back. Right? So you always have to take a fact and then you have to hold it up to truth because truth is true. And the word truth in Hebrew, emet, spelled with the first and the middle and the last letter of the alphabet. It takes into context everything. But we just take a little fact. Falsehood is made of three letters all scrunched together and in the wrong order. But truth takes the entire alphabet, the first, the middle, and the end. We have to have the spirit of truth or we don't know what to do with facts. Understood? Truth is what matters. And so that's why I don't get into arguments anymore over politics or nonsense like that, not even theology. I just don't bother arguing it. Unless it's another person wants to get to the truth with me. Then it's profitable. But if one person's not interested in, the, in truth and doesn't have the spirit of truth, all the facts, all the arguing in the world accomplish nothing. So what is the pattern for Beth the Coon? Well, I think it's the book of Haggai. It's only two chapters long, a little tiny book. And uh, I've read it before, but I tell you, this week it just came alive for me. And as I look at the book of Haggai, and I'm just speaking as the congregational leader, this is, this is kind of what I see. When I read this book, it seems to speak to Beth the Coon, to our history and where we're at and to our future. It's a template, and I'm sure it applies to a lot of other congregations, communities throughout history. And it discusses events that took place back during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. That was, its, that was the first leg of the table. But this pattern is played out in different times, different communities. And I think this is the template, the spiritual template, that happens to apply to our situation. But you can be the, des- the deciders of that. It's a great book, whether you agree with the teaching or not, read Haggai. Uh, Ariel Berkowitz, uh, he said, Haggai is different from other prophets in that he does not write concerning any idolatry, social and political ills, or other glaring sins. Now, most all the other prophets, they're sticking it to the people. You idolaters, you've sinned, you've rebelled against God, you've thrown his Torah behind your back. And, it, and Haggai doesn't do any of that. And Beth the Coon doesn't either. It's not a terribly critical book. It has some corrections, but they're very gentle. And they're very, very, very small. They're nudges. And he goes on to say, the only rebukes to his people are that they needed to finish God's house and get their priorities right in the process. And that's the message I'm going to bring to you from the book of Haggai. So let's turn to Haggai. It's a very small book. You're going to have trouble finding it, so let me help you. Go to the end of the Hebrew Bible, which is Malachi. Back up one to Zechariah, then back up one more, and you will be at Haggai. Now, here's the background for Haggai. The people being addressed here are people who had been in Babylon for 70 years. For many of them, it's all they had ever known. They've been taking exile there. Their parents had. And uh, that was all they ever knew. 
So they were in a foreign land. They weren't in their own country. They were, they were born and raised for the most part in this foreign land. And it was a good land. They were accepted there. They built homes. They had good jobs. It was comfortable. They had everything they needed. And when the call came, come back to your home. And the king of Babylon says, you're free to go. You Jewish people, go back home. Rebuild your temple, your walls, your city. Go back home. You know, only a small fraction did. Only a small fraction. And think of Beth Tacoon. Who are we made of? People, for the most part, raised in churches, Sunday churches, and some raised in synagogue. But there was a call in our hearts. We're the minority. We're the few who decide, you know what? I want to go back to authenticity, whatever that is. I've never been there. But I want to go back to the first things. I read the scriptures and my heart longs to go back to doing the things I think God's calling me to do. And so it was a minority of the Jewish people who came back to Israel. It's a minority of the Jewish people being addressed in Haggai. And we are a minority of the people who are part of the redeemed community. Right? But courageous people. People decide to be made fun of a little bit, do things a little different, and have family members think, what are you guys up to? What are you doing? What's this Sabbath thing you do, right? You don't eat pork chops anymore? What's wrong with you, you know? So we're going to just take a quick survey. Now, most of the rebuke in the book is found right here in the first verses. It's very gentle. Let's read them. So let's start with Haggai 1. I'll start with verse 1, but on the screen I've got verses 2 through 5. In the second year of Darius the king on the first day of the sixth month, you're going to find the calendar referred to a lot. Everything in Haggai happens between the first day of Elul and the 24th of Kislev. Uh, Elul 1 would have been August 21st of this year. And um, 24th of Kislev would have been December 10th. It's kind of interesting because it's within this context that Beth the Coon has gone through this incredible change. It's the same time of the year as all the events in Haggai take place. It says, the word of Adonai came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And you notice a lot of these names are ones you may recognize from our studies in Ezra and then in Nehemiah. It's the same period of time. Oh, and what has happened? Another bit of context before I go on. The people have come back. They started rebuilding the temple. They got it partway done. They got discouraged there is a lot of pushback about this from the neighbors, uh, neighboring uh, cities and peoples. So they shut it down. They quit building the temple. And so this is what God says to the prophet. Verse 2, thus says Adonai of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of Adonai to be rebuilt. It's just not convenient right now to continue building God's house according to God's plan. It's just not working out. Then the word of Adonai came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house, the house of God, lies desolate? In other words, you sure are busy building your own houses, your own lives, pursuing your own careers, doing your own thing, but you've drifted away from what you came back to do, and that's to build my house. You know, it's, um, I want to share something with you. I went back and forth whether I should or not, but I'm going to share it because it's more a reflection on me than it is on any of you. And it's this. Over the last couple of years, I've sensed this kind of a a softening of Beth the Coon's zeal. And it probably goes back before that. And I thought, I don't see anything to blame. I was 
maybe it's me. Maybe I'm not praying enough. But here was the canary in the coal mine that really began to alert me. For the first 20 years of Beth the Coon's existence, I don't think I ever heard anybody refer to us as a church. Now, biblically, of course, we're a church. But the word church, as it's used in the world today, refers to a building on Sunday or a group of people and what happens on a Sunday, not on a Sabbath. It refers to people who don't keep the Torah, who believe that the Torah is done away with and the commandments. And they go to a building, they sing songs, they have a sermon, a few prayers sprinkled in, they go home. And Beth the Coon for the first 20 years, I don't remember anybody ever referring to us and what we do as church. They'd say, I'm going to congregation, or I'm going to Beth the Coon, or I'm, some people say, I'm going to shul, which is a term that Jewish people use for synagogue. Or some people say, we're going to synagogue. I just never heard anybody say we're going to church. Over the last couple of years, I hear a lot of people at Beth the Coon saying, oh yeah, we were at church on Saturday. We really enjoy our church. I tell other people about our church, and I understand, I know what they mean, but why, why is this term sneaking up on us? When everything we do or should be doing is so very different from church. Now again, biblically, we're a church. Got it? Okay? I've said it. I, absolutely. I'm not ashamed of that. But the way church is understood in the modern world, that is not who we are. That is not what we are. And I realize a lot of people at Beth the Coon weren't there in the beginning. They don't really know the spirit, the heart, the foundation of Beth the Coon. And I haven't done a good enough job educating them. So to me, it was a reflection on me more than anything else. But Lord, how do we turn this ship? What do we do? And God has brought events into our country at this particular time that is causing us to turn this ship. Now let's go on through a little bit more. So the first five, six, oh, verse, uh, verse five, we didn't do that. Now therefore, thus says Adonai Fos, consider your ways. That word consider means give heart. Give heart to your ways. Take to heart how you're doing things and what you're doing. Because this is not the way it was at the beginning. Something's changed. Something is weakened. You have sown much, but now you're harvesting little. You eat, eh, not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. Now let's be careful with that one. <laughs> right? let's, let's look at this spiritually. Let's think of drinking living water. In other words, you're drinking living water, but you don't feel more alive. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put in a purse with holes. In other words, the things you did before that satisfied, you're doing those things now, but they're just not satisfying as they used to be. And then you start hearing little complaints. Well, we need to change this little thing. We need to adjust that. Or we need to do this little thing. Because everybody's trying to recapture something that was there before, the spark that somehow has just diminished. Now, in the next section, verses 7 to 11, God encourages them. He encourages them to return to the work. You know, we were talking about templates when you read the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3, those are seven templates for seven types of communities, for seven types of believers. These are all spiritual templates. Every single one of you fits one of those letters, that one of those templates. And the very first template there, the first letter, was a letter of praise. You're doing great, even though it's costing you and some of you are being martyred, you're doing fantastic. But when you come to the second letter, Yeshua praises that community and says, oh, you've done this and that and that. You guys are so busy doing all these things, but I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. You've drifted away from your first love. And that's the natural thing to do. In a marriage, you either keep the love alive or it will diminish on its own. It's like a fire. If you don't keep putting fuel into the fire, the fire burns out. 
our love for God has to be the same. Keep fueling it. Keep feeding it. So anyways, verse 7, thus says Adam my host, consider your ways. And then look what he says, go up to the mountains. Go up. Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says Adonai. So he encourages them to go to do these things, to take up the work, and, uh, and you know what? They do. They do. And I look at what's been going on in Beth Takoon for the last few weeks, and I see the people taking up the work. We've been forced back into homes. And it's kind of depressing. I miss seeing everybody's faces, you know, and... And, uh, but as Rob and I continue to call people and, and talk to people, people call us, and, well, what are you doing on Shabbat? And more times than not, oh, I'm getting together with these folks, or I'm having these people over to my home. It's fantastic. We pray together. We study together. We listen to teaching. We talk about it. We eat together. And it's wonderful. I think, oh, praise God. We're rediscovering our first love. Instead of sitting back face to back every week we're now sitting face to face each week we're not just watching someone lead in prayers we're all praying praying for one another having our needs prayed for sharing with one another the things going on in our life is wonderful sitting here this morning in a circle with you folks and and hearing the needs shared and hearing the praise reports shared and and just to pray with one another and and uh to be involved in your life on a level that I've missed for, for a long time. And then you go on down to verse 12. They start the work. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Adonai their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Adonai their God had sent them, and the people showed reverence for Adonai. And then verse 13 at the end. God says, I am with you, declares Adonai. Verse 14 at the end. And they came and worked on the house of Adonai of hosts, their God. God's house is a spiritual house. And it's easy for us to get so involved in physical houses, we forget to build the spiritual house. To get so involved in the the physical marriage, the physical relationship, or the physical arrangement of two people trying to live in a home. If you get the spiritual connection with your husband and wife. It's so easy to get involved in a physical career and being productive and fruitful physically and, and financially, we forget to be involved in the spiritual work, spiritual fruitfulness, spiritual prosperity. It's just easy. We're physical creatures. It's easy to get distracted. So the work continues and then it goes on until verse 15, till the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius King, Elul 24. Then you go to chapter 2. In verses 1 to 5, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. It says, on the 21st of the seventh month, that's the 21st of Tishrei, which happens to be the last day of Sukkot. Sukkot, you know, we build the, the little huts outside, the little sukkahs. And we stay in them for seven days and eat out there and enjoy them on the last day, which is the great day of the feast, right? That's the day when Yeshua and John, he stands up, if anyone's thirsty, let them come to me, I'll give him living water. I mean, that was the great day. It was a huge day of rejoicing. But it says, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of Adonai came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, And to the remnant of the people saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? He says, okay, you got the temple rebuilt. If I know what you're thinking, some of you old timers, you saw the original temple that Solomon built. You're thinking back to the old days. And how do you see it now? How how, How does this compare to Solomon's temple? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Let's think of Beth de Kuhn. A little over a year ago, we were getting 250, up close to 300 people in a service. By late summer, 
65 people. I don't count them, but somebody did. And then we had to return to our homes, break up into little, little family groups. This is nothing. What happened to the big groups? What happened to the glory? And look what God says. This looks like nothing compared to what you were. But don't go by what it looks like. And he tells us what's really going on. He says, but now take courage. Verse 4. Declares Adonai, take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage. Okay? Three times there he says, take courage. Declares Adonai, and work. For I am with you, declares Adonai of hosts. And for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says Adonai of hosts, once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and also in the dry land. I will shake all the nations. He says, I'm getting ready to shake up the world. And they will come with the wealth of nations. And the outcome of this is that the world's going to turn to God. But look what he says in verse 9. The latter glory of this house, even though it's smaller, doesn't look near as beautiful, a little sloppy because none of you are real gifted stonemasons. It doesn't look like Solomon's temple. But he says, but the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. So you can look at the Beth Dacoon that was a year, two years ago and say, boy, this doesn't look anything like that. And you're right. God says the glory is going to be greater. Because you're not observers anymore. You're participants in the work. And every time you sit face to face with a brother or sister and you pray for them, that temple is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Beth Tikkun is doing the work. And Tikkun, repair, is taking place. It's not so physical. But God's glory is more present. It's more real. And those of you who have been meeting together on a Shabbat, you know the joy that's there. Because real things are happening. Don't miss out on that. Don't spend so much time regretting the loss of the old that you can embrace the new that God has brought to us, which is better. It's temporary, but for now it's better than the old. And let me encourage you with this. You know, I I remember how wonderful Shabbat was. And and you know, in the first Shabbat of the month, we're going to get together as a group. That's going to be awesome. It's going to be wonderful. But all those in-between Shabbats, we were by ourselves. But I want you to think of something. Think of it this way. Every seventh day, the Lord of the Sabbath makes your home his home. That's exciting. And among the Jewish people, they talk about making Sabbath. Sabbath is a time that God ordains, and he's present for us to meet with him or not. It's up to you. But it's up to us to make the Sabbath a Sabbath, to make it Sabbath. What are you doing to make it Sabbath in your home or in someone else's that you're going to? Make it Sabbath. And let the Lord of the Sabbath make his home in your home. So there's this encouragement, this wonderful encouragement. And now, verses 10 to 19 are kind of cryptic, kind of an odd thing. You can work through that yourself. But he talks again about, um, and get this, you can't miss this. Verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, that's the month Kislev, right? 24th of Kislev. Go down to verse 18. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, Kislev. 
And again, you find it in verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Uh, I'm sorry, up one verse, verse 20. Then the word of Adonai came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Kislev. Anybody know what the 24th of Kislev is? That's when Hanukkah starts. And yet these events in Haggai occur about 300 years before the events we commemorate at Hanukkah. Hanukkah wasn't even around yet. That's going to come along. This is about 504 B.C. Hanukkah happens around 150 B.C., something like that. God had the template. Very well. Very good. Well put. Three times refers to the date of Hanukkah, which is still 300-some years in the future. The template stands for eternity. And what is Hanukkah? What does it celebrate? The dedication of the temple. Hanukkah means dedication. And this is a time for each of us as the temple of God's spirit to rededicate ourselves to his service. For us in our home groups, rededicate our little group to God's service. And when we come together the first Shabbat of the month, for however long we can do that, and these dark days are coming, we do it to rededicate ourselves to his service. It's all about serving God and serving one another, not observing ritual. It's got to be real. So let's just finish up the last few things here. So verses 10 to 19, it sounds, it kind of sounds negative. And you wonder where is this going? So let's pick it up in verse 18. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of Adonai was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. You haven't seen much fruitfulness over the last period of time. But from this day on, the day of dedication, I will bless you. And then look how the chapter ends. Then the word of Adonai came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. He's not talking about the people anymore. He says, I always want to give you a heads up what I'm going to do outside of you, out around you. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down every one by the sword of another. They're going to be fighting among themselves, killing each other. It's going to be death and destruction out there. On that day, declares Adonai of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares Adonai, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Adonai of hosts. So who is this person? Zerubbabel, Shealtiel, my servant. Are you God's servant? Then let it be you. The template applies to you. There's always the personal application of every template in God's stack of blueprints that applies to you. God's ready to shake the world. I think Haggai's the template for Beth It just seems to fit. The shoe fits, you wear it. I'm wearing this shoe. Now, what directed me to the book of Haggai is actually I was looking in Hebrews. And it was this quote in, in Haggai that, that uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes. Back in Haggai 2, verses 6 through 9, for thus says Adonai of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're just about done. Hebrews 12. Because this is the passage I've been reading for the last couple or three weeks as I see the world just come unraveled. Hebrews 12, 25. Everybody there? Here's the passage on the screen if you want to follow it. Now, this is written about 50 A.D. So this is written 
550-some years after the book of Haggai. It was written before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. But look what the writer says. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Where do we get warnings? From God's word, from the prophets, from the Torah, the writings, the, uh, the, the, the teachings of Yeshua. He gives us warnings about end times. And he say, if you want to escape, pay attention. Do you know that when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Messianic Jews had already left because they took Yeshua's warnings to heart. It says, when you see the army surround, pray that it's not on a Shabbat. And then you run to those hills over there. And they did. And they were spared. They took the warnings. Verse 26, and his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, and here he's quoting Haggai 2.6, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, here's the interesting thing. The writer of Hebrews, a lot smarter than me, knew the Bible better than me, knew God better than I do, yet he took that verse from Haggai that applied to that period of time, and he says it applies to today, in around 50 AD. He just lifted it completely out of his context because he knew the power of God's templates, and he knew what God was saying to the people then, applied to the people in 50 AD before the destruction of the temple. We need to take it and apply it to us as well. Because look what he says. I'll read it here from off the screen. And his voice shook the earth then, and it goes on, yet once more, once more, or again, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So folks, tell me, what things in your life can be shaken because they're not built on the rock? They're going to be shaken. What's the hay, wood, and stubble you've been producing? It's going to be shaken to pieces. What is it you put your security in? Is it a paycheck? Is it your health? Is it your house? Is it, what is it? Your political party? <laughs> That's going to out the window. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Count on it. You're being warned. But the things that are spiritual, the things that cannot be shaken, will not be shaken. So, I'm not going to get off this rock, but I'll help you get up on it with me. So I'm determined to go through these coming days unshakable. And when the world around me grows more and more dark, the little bit of light I produce becomes more obvious and brighter. And I'm determined to go through these dark days being a light, being an example of hope, of joy, and of gratitude. How can I be grateful? Brandon and I had a conversation here a week or so ago, and I was talking about how I just really sense for the first time in my life, here I'm an old man, finally, this is what I sense. The footsteps of Messiah, are, are, we're hearing them, and they're shaking the world. He's coming. And I said, things are going to get darker. And Brandon expressed what any normal person would. This is a scary time to be alive. I get it. I agree. But it's the most exciting time to be alive. Because if I'm right, this is the generation in which Yeshua returns. This is the generation that all the prophets wish they could live in. This is the time Abraham wished he could be alive because he's looking for that city. He's looking for that day when the kingdom comes. But he didn't see it. Being alive now is a tremendous privilege. If I'm right, we are the most privileged generation on earth, except maybe the one who got to walk with Yeshua. But we'll walk with him in a new way. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. 
And uh, that's my school motto, don't panic. Well, let's finish up. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of the things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When the writer says our God is a consuming fire, he's quoting the Torah. He's quoting Deuteronomy 4.24. But there, it says a bit more. It says for, there it says, for our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Add that phrase in. Because whenever there's a quote from the Torah, it gives you a little bit, but you fill in the rest. Our God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. You know why God has left America? Because America asked him to, told him to, drove him out. Drove him out of the schools, drove him out of the marketplace, drove him out of the courts, drove him out of the bedroom, drove him out of every part of our society that could drive him out. The thought of God is repulsive to this culture. So God says, okay, I'll leave. You know, Yeshua came, he's born in a place we, that was, ava- was available for him. That's, God has always been that way. He comes where we make space for him. If you don't want him, he goes away. But next time, he comes whether you're ready for him or not. He came as a lamb the first time. Yeshua comes as a lion next time. The lamb will get out of your way but you get out of the lion's way. You may eat the lamb. The lion will eat you. Got it? There's a big difference between a a lamb going, bah, and a lion roaring. Get ready for the lion to roar. But we who are friends of the lion, who know the lion of the tribe of Judah, we can't wait for him to come on the scene. So what is our stance We're going to go to one other chapter. I know we have about five minutes left. Won't take me that long. Go to Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah. Isaiah 26. My attention was drawn to this chapter because of an Israeli messianic rabbi, Rabbi Yitzhak Shapira, who's a rabbinically trained rabbi, but boy, does he love Messiah. Brilliant man. And he speaks of the last days. In Isaiah 26, especially the last two verses. Don't look there yet. Don't spoil the surprise. But uh, he, um, he says, Isaiah 26. That's the chapter we go to. And that's, this is the chapter I want to go to. And I'm, Beth the Coon, as far as I'm concerned, Beth the Coon's theme for these coming days are going to be taken from this chapter. Now, God gives templates all through the scriptures. He gives warnings. And usually, when he's warning his people, in some order or other, he gives promises of his watch care of the people. He tells them what kind of destruction is coming, and he also gives them instructions as to what to do. He might give the instructions first, and then the uh, description of the destruction second, promise at the end. But you'll almost always find these three things in God's template of... uh, of dire circumstances that are around the corner. So in Isaiah 26, the first four verses are promises. We'll skip the destruction part. You can read that on your own. And then we're going to go down to the instruction. I believe these two verses of instruction are for us, for Beth Tacoon. So let's look at the first part, verses 1 to 4. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you, Lord. Trust in Adonai forever, for in Yah Adonai we have an everlasting rock. That's our encouragement. That's our promises. We trust in him. We'll be on the rock. We're not going to shake. We're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness. 
Wonderful promises. Then from verses 5 on down to 19, it's very unpleasant to read. But you come to the last two verses. I put a box around these because these are the verses I read every day. And it's like God speaks into my soul. This is my instruction to Beth Tacoon. Come, my people, enter your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation, God's wrath, there's a word wrath there, until indignation runs its course. He's out there, he's going to be bringing destruction to the world. For behold, Adonai is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Come, my people, enter your rooms. Enter your rooms, close the door behind you. This is why I didn't know it because I wasn't reading this verse before, but now I know why God wants us to be in our houses, be in our homes. Go into your rooms, you and a few others. Close the door behind you. Hide. Just hide. No, Psalm 91 talks about those who, um, who, who make God their hiding place and they, they peek out with their eyes and they see the destruction of the enemies, but it won't come close to you. It won't touch you. You'll just peer out with your eyes. So what we do is we don't draw attention to ourselves, go into our rooms. God says, I'll be there with you. The only other place in Scripture I know of where we're told to go into our rooms is... Uh, when Yeshua tells his people to go into their rooms, their closets, to pray. But it also reminds me of in Exodus, where the angel of death is about to go through the streets. And it says this. Exodus 12, 22 and 23. You should take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, which is in the base, apply some of the blood that's in the base, the lentil, the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. The morning's coming, folks. We stay in home. For Adonai will pass through to smite the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, Adonai will pass over the door. will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. We must identify ourselves as followers of God, disciples of Yeshua. And don't worry about what things used to be. As I promise, once we go through this time and God's indignation passes over the earth, the future, oh my goodness, we can't even begin to dream. Okay? Yes, Robin. Good point. And were able to leave the darkness of Egypt and become part of that yes. community. And that's the point. Yes. And I know you couldn't hear that, but Robin was saying when the, the, when the Israelites went into their homes, there had been enough destruction already coming to Egypt, and they watched how the, the Israelites were protected from that. Many of the Egyptians also put the blood on their doors. They followed the example. They realized there was light in the homes of the Israelites, those who followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they did the same. And when the day came of deliverance, there was a great mixed multitude that went out. Great mixed multitude. The best thing you can do for the world during this time is to be a light, to be faithful, to be hopeful, calm, joyful, at peace. Stand on the rock. Don't panic. This is the time when you find out if your faith is really faith or if it's just opinion or religion. Because religion will fall. Opinions will all be destroyed. But the people of faith who truly trust in God are going to be just fine. Just going to be just fine. All right? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the comfort of your word, for the warnings it gives, for the templates it gives for our lives, for our communities, and for our world. 
Lord, you've brought destruction many times because that is what we asked for. But Father, we're not like the world. We're not of the world, though we are in it. And we don't put our faith in politics or in world leaders. We don't put faith in anything that has to do with man. We put our faith in the Son of Man, Yeshua, our Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We put our faith in our Creator. We put our faith in you, Father, for you're our Father. We are your children, and you always take care of your own. So though we may have to go through darkness and pain and discomfort, it's okay. Because you're here with us. We're in our homes. We've gone into our rooms, closed the door behind us, and find you waiting for us right there. So Lord, I pray our homes become sanctuaries, that they would become temples that are filled with your glory. And may you do great things in us and through us in the days ahead. We ask for the sake of your coming kingdom, in the name of Yeshua. Amen.